are listening to the However Improbable podcast. This week, the novella The Sign of Four by Arthur Conan Doyle is narrated for you by Paula Brett. Chapter 4 The Story of the Bald Headed Man. We followed the Indian down a sordid and common passage, ill-lit and worse furnished, until he came to a door upon the right, which he threw open. A blaze of yellow light streamed out upon us, and in the centre of the glare there stood a small man with a very high head, a bristle of red hair all round the fringe of it, and a bald, shining scalp which shot out from among it like a mountain peak from fir trees. He writhed his hands together as he stood, and his features were in a perpetual jerk, now smiling, now scowling, but never for an instant in repose. Nature had given him a pendulous lip and a too visible line of yellow and irregular teeth, which he strove feebly to conceal by constantly passing his hand over the lower part of his face. In spite of his obtrusive baldness, he gave the impression of youth. In point of fact, he had just turned his thirtieth year. "'Your servant to Miss Morstan,' he kept repeating in a thin, high voice. "'Your servant, gentlemen. Pray step into my little sanctum. A small place, miss, but furnished to my own liking. An oasis of art in the howling desert of South London.' We were all astonished by the appearance of the apartment into which he invited us. In that sorry house it looked as out of place as a diamond of the first water in a setting of brass. The richest and glossiest of curtains and tapestries draped the walls, looped back here and there to expose some richly mounted painting or oriental vase. The carpet was of amber and black, so soft and thick that the foot sank pleasantly into it as into a bed of moss. Two great tiger-skins thrown athwart it increased the suggestion of eastern luxury, as did a huge hookah which stood upon a mat in the corner. A lamp in the fashion of a silver dove was hung from an almost invisible golden wire in the centre of the room. As it burned, it filled the air with a subtle and aromatic odour. "'Mr. Thaddeus Sholto,' said the little man, still jerking and smiling. "'That is my name. You are Miss Morstan, of course, and these gentlemen?' "'This is Mr. Sherlock Holmes, and this is Dr. Watson.' "'A doctor, eh?' cried he, much excited. "'Have you your stethoscope? Might I ask you, would you have the kindness?' I have grave doubts as to my mitral valve, if you would be so very good. The aortic I may rely upon, but I should value your opinion upon the mitral. I listened to his heart, as requested, but was unable to find anything amiss, save indeed that he was in an ecstasy of fear, for he shivered from head to foot. It appears to be normal, I said. You have no cause for uneasiness. "'You will excuse my anxiety, Miss Morstan,' he remarked airily. "'I am a great sufferer, and I have long had suspicions as to that valve. "'I am delighted to hear they are unwarranted. "'Had your father, Miss Morstan, refrained from throwing a strain upon his heart, "'he might have been alive now. "'I could have struck the man across the face, "'so hot was I at this callous and off-handed reference to so delicate a matter.' 
Miss Morstan sat down and her face grew white to the lips. I knew in my heart that he was dead, said she. I can give you every information, said he, and what is more, I can do you justice, and I will, too, whatever Brother Bartholomew may say. I am so glad to have your friends here, not only as an escort to you, but also as witnesses to what I am about to do and say. The three of us can show a bold front to Brother Bartholomew. But let us have no outsiders, no police or officials. We can settle everything satisfactorily among ourselves without any interference. Nothing would annoy Brother Bartholomew more than any publicity. He sat down upon a low settee and blinked at us inquiringly with his weak, watery blue eyes. For my part, said Holmes, whatever you may choose to say will go no further. I nodded to show my agreement. That is well. That is well, said he. May I offer you a glass of Chianti, Miss Morstan? Or of Tokay? I keep no other wines. Shall I open a flask? <laughs> no? Well, then, I trust that you have no objection to tobacco smoke, to the mild balsamic odour of the eastern tobacco. I am a little nervous, and I find my hookah an invaluable sedative. He applied a taper to the great bowl, and the smoke bubbled merrily through the rose water. We sat all three in a semicircle, with our heads advanced and our chins upon our hands, while the strange, jerky little fellow with his high, shining head puffed uneasily in the centre. "'When I first determined to make this communication to you,' said he, "'I might have given you my address, but I feared that you might disregard my request and bring unpleasant people with you.' I took the liberty, therefore, of making an appointment in such a way that my man, Williams, might be able to see you first. I have complete confidence in his discretion, and he had orders, if he were dissatisfied, to proceed no further in the matter. You will excuse these precautions, but I am a man of somewhat retiring, and I might even say refined, tastes, and there is nothing more unesthetic than a policeman. I have a natural shrinking from all forms of rough materialism. I seldom come into contact with the rough crowd. I live, as you see, with some little atmosphere of elegance around me. I may call myself a patron of the arts. It is my weakness. The landscape is a genuine Corot, and though a connoisseur might perhaps throw a doubt upon that Salvatore Rosa, there cannot be the least question about the Bourgeroux. I am partial to the modern French school. You will excuse me, Mr. Sholto, said Miss Morstan, but I am here at your request to learn something which you desire to tell me. It is very late, and I should desire the interview to be as short as possible. At the best, it must take some time, he answered, for we shall certainly have to go to Norwood and see Brother Bartholomew. We shall all go and try if we can get the better of Brother Bartholomew. He is very angry with me for taking the cause which has seemed right to me. I had quite high words with him last night. You cannot imagine what a terrible fellow he is when he is angry. If we are to go to Norwood, it would perhaps be as well to start at once, I ventured to remark. He laughed until his ears were quite red. 
That would hardly do, he cried. I don't know what he would say if I brought you in that sudden way. No, I must prepare you by showing you how we all stand to each other. In the first place, I must tell you that there are several points in the story of which I am myself ignorant. I can only lay the facts before you as far as I know them myself. My father was, as you may have guessed, Major John Sholto, once of the Indian Army. He retired some eleven years ago and came to live at Pondicherry Lodge in Upper Norwood. He had prospered in India and brought back with him a considerable sum of money, a large collection of valuable curiosities, and a staff of native servants. With these advantages he brought himself a house and lived in great luxury. My twin brother, uh, Bartholomew, and I were the only children. I very well remember the sensation which was caused by the disappearance of Captain Morstan. We read the details in the papers, and knowing that he had been a friend of our father's, we discussed the case freely in his presence. He used to join in our speculations as to what could have happened. Never for an instant did we suspect that he had the whole secret hidden in his own breast, that of all men he alone knew the fate of Arthur Morstan. We did know, however, that some mystery, some positive danger, overhung our father. He was very fearful of going out alone, and he always employed two prize fighters to act as porters at Pondicherry Lodge. Williams, who drove you tonight, was one of them. He was once lightweight champion of England. Our father would never tell us what it was he feared, but he had a most marked aversion to men with wooden legs. On one occasion, he actually fired his revolver at a wooden-legged man who proved to be a harmless tradesman canvassing for orders. We had to pay a large sum to hush the matter up. My brother and I used to think that this is a mere whim of my father's, but events have since led us to change our opinion. Early in 1882, my father received a letter from India, which was a great shock to him. He nearly fainted at the breakfast table when he opened it, and from that day he sickened to his death. What was in the letter we could never discover, but I could see as he held it that it was short and written in a scrawling hand. He had suffered for years from an enlarged spleen, but he now became rapidly worse, and towards the end of April we were informed that he was beyond all hope and that he wished to make a last communication to us. When we entered his room, he was propped up with pillows and breathing heavily. He besought us to lock the door and to come upon either side of the bed. Then, grasping our hands, he made a remarkable statement to us in a voice which broke as much by emotion as by pain. I shall try and give it to you in his very own words. I have only one thing, he said, which weighs upon my mind at this supreme moment. It is my treatment of poor Morstan's orphan. The cursed greed which has been my besetting sin through life has withheld from her the treasure, half at least of which should have been hers, and yet I have made no use of it myself. So blind and foolish a thing is avarice. The mere feeling of possession has been so dear to me that I could not bear to share it with another. See that chaplet dipped with pearls beside the quinine bottle. 
even that I could not bear to part with, although I had got it out with the design of sending it to her. You, my sons, will give her a fair share of the Agra treasure, but send her nothing, not even the chaplet, until I am gone. After all, men have been as bad as this and have recovered. I will tell you how Morstan died, he continued. He had suffered for years from a weak heart, but he concealed it from everyone. I alone knew it. When in India, he and I, through a remarkable chain of circumstances, came into possession of a considerable treasure. I brought it over from England, and on the night of Morstan's arrival, he came straight over here to claim his share. He walked over from the station and was admitted by my faithful old Lal Chowder, who is now dead. Morstan and I had a difference of opinion as to the division of the treasure, and we came to heated words. Morstan had sprung out of his chair in a paroxysm of anger when he suddenly pressed his hand to his side. His face turned a dusky hue, and he fell backwards, cutting his head against the corner of the treasure chest. When I stooped over him, I found, to my horror, that he was dead. For a long time I sat half-distracted, wondering what I should do. My first impulse was, of course, to call for assistance, but I could not but recognise that there was every chance that I would be accused of his murder. His death at the moment of a quarrel and the gash in his head would be black against me. Again, an official inquiry could not be made without bringing out some facts about the treasure, which I was particularly anxious to keep secret. He had told me that no soul upon earth knew where he had gone. There seemed to be no necessity why any soul ever should know. I was still pondering over the matter when, looking up, I saw my servant Lao Chowder in the doorway. He stole in and bolted the door behind him. "'Do not fear, Sahib,' he said. "'No one need know that you have killed him. Let us hide him away, and who is the wiser?' "'I did not kill him,' said I. Lal Chowder shook his head and smiled. "'I heard it all, Sahib.' said he. I heard you quarrel and I heard the blow, but my lips are sealed. All are asleep in the house. Let us put him away together. That was enough to decide me. If my own servant could not believe my innocence, how could I hope to make it good before twelve foolish tradesmen in a jury box? Lal Chowder and I disposed of the body that night, and within a few days the London papers were full of the mysterious disappearance of Captain Morstan. You will see from what I say that I can hardly be blamed in the matter. My fault lies in the fact that we concealed not only the body, but also the treasure, and that I have clung to Morstan's share as well as to my own. I wish you... Therefore, to make restitution, put your ears down to my mouth. The treasure is hidden in. At this instant, a horrible change came over his expression. His eyes stared wildly, his jaw dropped and he yelled in a voice which I can never forget. Keep him out! For God's sake, keep him out! 
We both stared round at the window behind us upon which his gaze was fixed. A face was looking in at us out of the darkness. We could see the whitening of the nose where it was pressed against the glass. It was a bearded, hairy face with wild, cruel eyes and an expression of concentrated malevolence. My brother and I rushed towards the window, but the man was gone. When we returned to my father, his head had dropped and his pulse had ceased to beat. We searched the garden that night, but found no sign of the intruder, save that just under the window a single footmark was visible in the flower bed. But for that one trace, we might have thought that our imaginations had conjured up that wild, fierce face. We soon, however, had another and more striking proof that there were secret agencies at work all around us. The window of my father's room was found open in the morning. His cupboards and boxes had been rifled, and upon his chest was fixed a torn piece of paper with the words, The Sign of the Four, scrawled across it. What the phrase meant, or who our secret visitor may have been, we never knew. As far as we can judge, none of my father's property had actually been stolen, though everything had been turned out. My brother and I naturally associated this particular incident with fear which haunted my father during his life, but it is still a complete mystery to us. The little man stopped to relight his hookah and puffed thoughtfully for a few moments. We had all sat absorbed, listening to his extraordinary narrative. At the short account of her father's death, Miss Morstan had turned deadly white, and for a moment I feared that she was about to faint. She rallied, however, on drinking a glass of water which I quietly poured out for her from a Venetian carafe upon the side table. Sherlock Holmes leaned back in his chair with an abstracted expression and the lids drawn low over his glittering eyes. As I glanced at him, I could not but think how on that very day he had complained bitterly of the commonplaceness of life. Here at least was a problem which would tax his sagacity to the utmost. Mr. Thaddeus Sholto looked from one to the other of us with an obvious pride at the effect which his story had produced, and then continued between the puffs of his overgrown pipe. My brother and I, said he, were, as you may imagine, much excited as to the treasure which my father had spoken of. For weeks and for months we dug and delved into every part of the garden without discovering its whereabouts. It was maddening to think that the hiding place was on his very lips at the moment that he died. We could judge the splendour of the missing riches by the chaplet which he had taken out. Over this chaplet, my brother Bartholomew and I had some little discussion. The pearls were evidently of great value, and he was averse to part with them, for, between friends, my brother was himself a little inclined to my father's fault. He thought, too, that if we parted with the chaplet, it might give rise to gossip and finally bring us into trouble. It was all that I could do to persuade him to let me find out Miss Morstan's address and send her a detached pearl at fixed intervals, so that at least she might never feel destitute. It was a kindly thought, said our companion earnestly. It was extremely good of you. The little man waved his hand deprecatingly. We were your trustees, he said. 
That was the view which I took of it, though Brother Bartholomew could not altogether see it in that light. We had plenty of money ourselves. I desired no more. Besides, it would have been such bad taste to have treated a young lady in so scurvy a fashion. Le mauvais goût mène au crime. The French have a very neat way of putting these things. Our difference of opinion on this subject went so far that I thought it best to set up rooms for myself. So I left Pondicherry Lodge, taking the old Kitmutgar and Williams with me. Yesterday, however, I learned that an event of extreme importance has occurred. The treasure has been discovered. I instantly communicated with Miss Morstan, and it only remains for us to drive out to Norwood and demand our share. I explained my views last night to Brother Bartholomew, so we shall be expected, if not welcome, visitors. Mr. Thaddeus Sholto ceased and sat twitching on his luxurious settee. We all remained silent with our thoughts upon the new development which the mysterious business had taken. Holmes was the first to spring to his feet. "'You have done well, sir, from first to last,' said he. "'It is possible that we may be able to make you some small return by throwing some light upon that which is still dark to you. But, as Miss Morstan remarked just now, it is late and we had best put the matter through without delay.' Our new acquaintance very deliberately coiled up the tube of his hookah and produced from behind a curtain a very long, befrogged topcoat with astrakhan collar and cuffs. This he buttoned tightly up in spite of the extreme closeness of the night and finished his attire by putting on a rabbit-skin cap with hanging lappets which covered the ears so that no part of him was visible save his mobile and peaky face. "'My health is somewhat fragile,' he remarked as he led the way down the passage. "'I am compelled to be a valetudinarian.' Our cab was awaiting us outside, and our programme was evidently prearranged, for the driver started off at once at a rapid pace. Thaddea Sholto talked incessantly in a voice which rose high above the rattle of the wheels. "'Bartholomew is a clever fellow,' said he. "'How do you think he found out where the treasure was? "'He had come to the conclusion that it was somewhere indoors, "'so he worked out all the cubic space of the house "'and made measurements everywhere "'so that not one inch should be unaccounted for. "'Among other things, he found that the height of the building was 74 feet, "'but on adding together the heights of all the separate rooms "'and making every allowance for the space between, "'which he ascertained by borings, he could not bring the total to more than seventy feet. There were four feet unaccounted for. These could only be at the top of the building. He knocked a hole, therefore, in the lath and plaster ceiling of the highest room, and there, sure enough, he came upon another little garret above it which had been sealed up and was known to no one. In the centre stood the treasure chest, resting upon two rafters. He lowered it through the hole, and there it lies. He computes the value of the jewels at not less than half a million sterling. At the mention of this gigantic sum, we all stared at each other, open-eyed. Miss Morstan, could we secure her rights, would change from a needy governess to the richest heiress in England. Surely it was the place of a loyal friend to rejoice at such news, yet I am 
ashamed to say that selfishness took me by the soul and that my heart turned as heavy as lead within me. I stammered out some few halting words of congratulation and then sat downcast, with my head drooped, deaf to the babble of our new acquaintance. He was clearly a confirmed hypochondriac, and I was dreamily conscious that he was pouring forth interminable trains of symptoms and imploring information as to the composition and action of innumerable quick nostrums, some of which he bore about in a leather case in his pocket. I trust that he may not remember any of the answers which I gave him that night. Holmes declares that he overheard me caution him against the great danger of taking more than two drops of castor oil, while I recommended strychnine in large doses as a sedative. However that may be, I was certainly relieved when our cab pulled up with a jerk and the coachman sprang down to open the door. This, Miss Morstan, is Pondicherry Lodge, said Mr. Fideus Sholto as he handed her out. Chapter 5 The Tragedy of Pondicherry Lodge it was nearly eleven o'clock when we reached this final stage of our night's adventures. We had left the damp fog of the great city behind us and the night was fairly fine. A warm wind blew from the westward and heavy clouds moved slowly across the sky with a half-moon peeping occasionally through the rifts. It was clear enough to see for some distance but Thaddeus Sholto took down one of the side lamps from the carriage to give us a better light upon our way. Pondicherry Lodge stood low in its own grounds and was girt round with a very high stone wall topped with broken glass. A single narrow iron-clamped door formed the only means of entrance. On this our guide knocked with a peculiar postman-like rat-tat. Who is there? came a gruff voice from within. It is I, McMurdo. <laughs> you, you surely know my knock by this time. There was a grumbling sound and a clanking and jarring of keys. The door swung heavily back and a short, deep-chested man stood in the opening with the yellow light of the lantern shining upon his protruded face and twinkling, distrustful eyes. That you, Mr. Thaddeus? But who were the others? I had no orders about them from the master. No, McMurdo, you surprise me. I told my brother last night that I should bring some friends. He ain't been out of his room today, Mr. Thaddeus, and I have no orders. You know very well that I must stick to regulations. I can let you in, but your friends must just stop where they are. This was an unexpected obstacle. Thaddeus Sholto looked about him in a perplexed and helpless manner. This is too bad of you, McMurdo, he said. If I guarantee them, that is enough for you. There is the young lady, too. She cannot wait on the public road at this hour. Very sorry, Mr. Thaddeus, said the porter, inexorably. Folk may be friends of yours, and yet no friends of the master's. He pays me well to do my duty, and my duty I'll do. I don't know none of your friends. Oh, yes, you do, Mr. McMurdo, cried Sherlock Holmes genially. I don't think you can have forgotten me. Don't you remember the amateur who fought three rounds with you at Allison's rooms on the night of your benefit four years back? Not Mr. Sherlock Holmes, roared the prize-fighter. God's truth! How could I have mistook you? If instead of standing there so quiet you had just stepped up and given me that cross hit of yours under the jaw, I'd have known you without question.
Ah, you're the one that's wasted your gifts you have. You might have aimed high if you had joined the fancy. You see, Watson, if all else fails me, I still have one of the scientific professions open to me, said Holmes, laughing. Our friend won't keep us out in the cold now, I am sure. In you come, sir, in you come, you and your friends, he answered. Very sorry, Mr. Thaddeus, but orders are very strict. I had to be certain of your friends before I let him in. Inside, the gravel path wound through desolate grounds to a huge clump of a house, square and prosaic, all plunged in shadow save where a moonbeam struck one corner and glimmered in a garret window. The vast size of the building, with its gloom and its deathly silence, struck a chill to the heart. Even Thaddeus Sholto seemed ill at ease, and the lantern quivered and rattled in his hand. I cannot understand it, he said. There must be some mistake. I distinctly told Bartholomew that we should be here, and yet there is no light in his window. I do not know what to make of it. Does he always guard the premises in this way? asked Holmes. Yes, he has followed my father's custom. He was the favourite son, you know, and I sometimes think that my father may have told him more than he ever told me. That is Bartholomew's window, up there where the moonshine strikes. It is quite bright, but there is no light from within, I think. None, said Holmes, but I see the glint of a light in that little window beside the door. Ah, that is the housekeeper's room. That is where old Mrs. Bernston sits. She can tell us all about it, but perhaps you would not mind waiting here for a minute or two, for if we all go in together and she has no word of our coming, she may be alarmed. But hush, what is that? He held up the lantern, and his hand shook until the circles of light flickered and wavered all around us. Miss Morstan seized my wrist, and we all stood with thumping hearts, straining our ears. From the great black house there sounded through the silent night the saddest and most pitiful of sounds, the shrill, broken whimpering of a frightened woman. It is Mrs. Bernston, said Sholto. She is the only woman in the house. Oh, wait here. I shall be back in a moment. He hurried for the door and knocked in his peculiar way. We could see a tall old woman admit him and sway with pleasure at the very sight of him. Oh, Mr. Thaddeus, sir, I am so glad you have come. I am so glad you have come, Mr. Thaddeus, sir. We heard her reiterated rejoicings until the door was closed and her voice died away into a muffled monotone. Our guide had left us the lantern. Holmes swung it slowly round and peered keenly at the house and at the great rubbish heaps which cumbered the grounds. Miss Morstan and I stood together, and her hand was in mine. A wondrous, subtle thing is love, for here were we two, who had never seen each other before that day, between whom no word or even look of affection had ever passed, and yet now, in an hour of trouble, our hands instinctively sought for each other. I have marvelled at it since, but at the time it seemed the most natural thing that I should go out to her so, and, as she has often told me, there was in her also the instinct to turn to me for comfort and protection. 
So we stood hand in hand, like two children, and there was peace in our hearts for all the dark things that surrounded us. What a strange place, she said, looking round. It looks as though all the moles in England have been let loose in it. I have seen something of the sort on the side of a hill near Ballarat where the prospectors have been at work. And from the same cause, said Holmes, these are the traces of the treasure seekers. You must remember that they were six years looking for it. No wonder that the grounds look like a gravel pit. At that moment, the door of the house burst open and Thaddeus Sholto came running out with his hands thrown forward and terror in his eyes. There is something amiss with Bartholomew, he cried. I am frightened. My nerves cannot stand it. He was indeed half blubbering with fear and his twisting, feeble face peeping out from the great astrakhan collar had the helpless, appealing expression of a terrified child. Come into the house, said Holmes in his crisp, firm way. Yes, do, pleaded Thaddeus Sholto. I really do not feel equal to giving directions. We all followed him into the housekeeper's room, which stood upon the left-hand side of the passage. The old woman was pacing up and down with a scared look and restless, picking fingers, but the sight of Miss Morstan appeared to have a soothing effect upon her. "'God bless your sweet, calm face!' she cried with a hysterical sob. "'It does me good to see you. Oh, but I have been sorely tried this day!' Our companion patted her thin, work-worn hand and murmured some few words of kindly, womanly comfort, which brought the colour back into the other's bloodless cheeks. "'Master has locked himself in and will not answer me!' she explained. "'All day I have waited to hear from him, for he often likes to be alone. But an hour ago I feared that something was amiss, so I went up and peeped through the keyhole.' You must go up, Mr. Thaddeus. You must go up and look for yourself. I have seen Mr. Bartholomew Sholto in joy and sorrow for ten long years, but I never saw him with such a face on him as that. Sherlock Holmes took the lamp and led the way, for Thaddeus Sholto's teeth were chattering in his head. So shaken was he that I had to pass my hand under his arm as we went up the stairs, for his knees were trembling under him. Twice as we ascended, Holmes whipped his lens out of his pocket and carefully examined marks which appeared to be mere shapeless smudges of dust upon the coconut matting which served as a stair carpet. He walked slowly from step to step, holding the lamp and shooting keen glances to right and left. Miss Morstan had remained behind with the frightened housekeeper. The third flight of stairs ended in a straight passage of some length, with a great picture in Indian tapestry upon the right of it, and three doors upon the left. Holmes advanced along it in the same slow and methodical way, while we kept close at his heels, with our long black shadows streaming backwards down the corridor. The third door was that which we were seeking. Holmes knocked without receiving any answer and then tried to turn the handle and force it open. It was locked on the inside, however, and by a broad and powerful bolt as we could see when we set our lamp up against it. The key being turned, however, the hole was not entirely closed. Sherlock Holmes bent down to it and instantly rose again with a sharp intaking of breath. There is something devilish in this, Watson said he, more moved than I had ever before seen him. What do you make of it? I stooped to the hole and recoiled in horror. 
Moonlight was streaming into the room and it was bright with a vague and shifty radiance, looking straight at me and suspended, as it were, in the air, for all beneath was in shadow, there hung a face, the very face of our companion Thaddeus. There was the same high, shining head, the same circular bristle of red hair, the same bloodless countenance. The features were set, however, in a horrible smile, a fixed and unnatural grin, which in that still and moonlit room was more jarring to the nerves than any scowl or contortion. So like was the face of that of our little friend that I looked round at him to make sure that he was indeed with us. Then I recalled to mind that he had mentioned to us that his brother and he were twins. This is terrible, I said to Holmes. What is to be done? The door must come down, he answered, and springing against it, he put all his weight upon the lock. It creaked and groaned, but did not yield. Together we flung ourselves upon it once more, and this time it gave way with a sudden snap, and we found ourselves within Bartholomew Sholto's chamber. It appeared to have been fitted up as a chemical laboratory. A double line of glass-stoppered bottles were drawn up upon the wall opposite the door, and the table was littered over with Bunsen burners, test tubes and retorts. In the corners stood carboys of acid in wicker baskets. One of these appeared to leak or have been broken, for a stream of dark-coloured liquid had trickled out from it, and the air was heavy with a particularly pugnant, tar-like odour. A set of steps stood at one side of the room, in the midst of a litter of lath and plaster, and above them there was an opening in the ceiling large enough for a man to pass through. At the foot of the steps a long coil of rope was thrown carelessly together. By the table, in a wooden armchair, the master of the house was seated all in a heap, with his head sunk upon his left shoulder, and that ghastly, inscrutable smile upon his face. He was stiff and cold, and had clearly been dead many hours. It seemed to me that not only his features, but all his limbs were twisted and turned in the most fantastic fashion. By his hand, upon the table, there lay a peculiar instrument. A brown, close-grained stick, with a stone head like a hammer, rudely lashed on with coarse twine. Beside it was a torn sheet of notepaper with some words scrawled upon it. Holmes glanced at it and then handed it to me. You see, he said, with a significant raising of the eyebrows. In the light of the lantern I read, with a thrill of horror, the sign of the four. In God's name, what does it all mean? I asked. It means murder, said he, stooping over the dead man. Ah, I expected it. Look here. He pointed to what looked like a long, dark thorn stuck in the skin just above the ear. It looks like a thorn, said I. It is a thorn. You may pick it out. But be careful, for it is poisoned. I took it up between my finger and thumb. It came away from the skin so readily that hardly any mark was left behind. One tiny speck of blood showed where the puncture had been. This is all an insoluble mystery to me, said I. It grows darker instead of clearer. On the contrary, he answered, it clears every instant. I only require a few missing links to have an entirely connected case. We had almost forgotten our companion's presence since we entered the chamber. 
He was still standing in the doorway, the very picture of terror, wringing his hands and moaning to himself. Suddenly, however, he broke out into a sharp, querulous cry. The treasure is gone, he said. They have robbed him of the treasure. There is the hole through which we lowered it. I helped him to do it. I was the last person who saw him. I left him here last night and I heard him lock the door as I came downstairs. What time was that? It was ten o'clock and now he is dead and the police will be called in and I shall be suspected of having had a hand in it. Oh yes, I am sure I shall. But you don't think so, gentlemen? Surely you don't think that it was I? Is it likely that I would have brought you here if it were I? Oh dear, oh dear, I know I shall go mad. He jerked his arms and stamped his feet in a kind of convulsive frenzy. You have no reason for fear, Mr. Sholto, said Holmes kindly, putting his hand upon his shoulder. Take my advice and drive down to the station to report this matter to the police. Offer to assist them in every way. We shall wait here until your return. The little man obeyed in a half-stupefied fashion, and we heard him stumbling down the stairs in the dark. Chapter 6 Sherlock Holmes Gives a Demonstration Now, Watson, said Holmes, rubbing his hands, we have half an hour to ourselves. Let us make good use of it. My case is, as I have told you, almost complete, but we must not err on the side of overconfidence. Simple as the case seems now, there may be something deeper underlying it. Simple? I ejaculated. Surely, said he, with something of the air of a clinical professor expounding to his class. Just sit in the corner there, that your footprints may not complicate matters. Now, to work. In the first place, how did these folk come and how did they go? The door has not been opened since last night. How of the window? He carried the lamp across to it, muttering his observations aloud the while, but addressing them to himself rather than to me. Window is snibbed on the inner side. Framework is solid. No hinges at the side. Let us open it. No water pipe near. Roof quite out of reach, yet a man has mounted by the window. It rained a little last night. Here is the print of a foot in mould upon the sill, and here is a circular muddy mark, and here again upon the floor. And here again by the table. See here, Watson. This is really a very pretty demonstration. I looked at the round, well-defined, muddy discs. That is not a footmark, said I. It is something much more valuable to us. It is the impression of a wooden stump. You see here on the sill is the boot mark, a heavy boot with the broad metal heel, and beside it is the mark of the timber toe. It is the wooden-legged man! Quite so. But there has been someone else, a very able and efficient ally. Could you scale that wall, Doctor? I looked out of the open window. The moon still shone brightly on that angle of the house. We were a good sixty feet from the ground, and, uh, look where I could, I could see no foothold nor as much as a crevice in the brickwork. 
It is absolutely impossible, I answered. Without aid, it is so. But suppose you had a friend up here who lowered you this good stout rope, which I see in the corner, securing one end of it to this great hook in the wall. Then, I think, if you were an active man, you might swarm up, wooden leg and all. You would depart, of course, in the same fashion, and your ally would draw up the rope, untie it from the hook, shut the window, snip it on the inside, and get away in the way that he originally came. As a minor point, it may be noted, he continued fingering the rope, that our wooden-legged friend, though a fair climber, was not a professional sailor. His hands were far from horny. My lens discloses more than one blood mark, especially towards the end of the rope, from which I gather that he slipped down with such velocity that he took the skin off his hand. This is all very well, said I, but the thing becomes more unintelligible than ever. How about this mysterious ally? How came he into the room? Yes, the ally, repeated Holmes pensively. There are features of interest about this ally. He lifts the case from the regions of the commonplace. I fancy that this ally breaks fresh ground in the annals of crime in this country, though parallel cases suggest themselves from India and, if my memory serves me, from Senegambia. How came he then? I reiterated. The door is locked, the window is inaccessible, was it through the chimney? The grate is much too small, he answered. I had already considered that possibility. How then? I persisted. You will not apply my precept, he said, shaking his head. How often have I said to you that when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth? We know that he did not come through the door, the window, or the chimney. We also know that he could not have been concealed in the room, as there is no concealment possible. Whence, then, did he come? He came through the hole in the roof! I cried. Of course he did. He must have done so. If you will have the kindness to hold the lamp for me, we shall now extend our researches to the room above. The secret room in which the treasure was found. He mounted the steps and, seizing a rafter with either hand, he swung himself up into the garret. Then, lying on his face, he reached down for the lamp and held it while I followed him. The chamber in which we found ourselves was about ten feet one way and six the other. The floor was formed by the rafters, with thin lath and plaster between, so that in walking one had to step from beam to beam. The roof ran up to an apex and was evidently the inner shell of the true roof of the house. There was no furniture of any sort, and the accumulated dust of years lay thick upon the floor. Here you are, you see, said Sherlock Holmes, putting his hand against the sloping wall. This is a trapdoor which leads out onto the roof. I can press it back, and here is the roof itself, sloping at a gentle angle. This, then, is the way by which number one entered. Let us see if we can find any other traces of his individuality. 
He held down the lamp to the floor, and as he did so, I saw, for the second time that night, a startled, surprised look come over his face. For myself, as I followed his gaze, my skin was cold under my clothes. The floor was covered thickly with the prints of a naked foot. Clear, well-defined, perfectly formed, but scarce half the size of those of an ordinary man. Holmes, I said in a whisper. A child has done this horrid thing. He had recovered his self-possession in an instant. I was staggered for the moment, he said, but the thing is quite natural. My memory failed me, or I should have been able to foretell it. There is nothing more to be learned here. Let us go down. What is your theory, then, as to those footmarks? I asked eagerly when we had regained the lower room once more. My dear Watson, try a little analysis yourself, said he with a touch of impatience. You know my methods. Apply them and it will be instructive to compare results. I cannot conceive of anything which will cover the facts, I answered. It will be clear enough to you soon, he said in an offhand way. I think that there is nothing else of importance here, but I will look. He whipped out his lens and a tape measure and hurried about the room on his knees, measuring, comparing, examining, with his long, thin nose only a few inches from the planks and his beady eyes gleaming and deep-set like those of a bird. So swift, silent and furtive were his movements, like those of a trained bloodhound picking out a scent, that I could not but think what a terrible criminal he would have made had he turned his energy and sagacity against the law instead of exerting them in its defence. As he hunted about, he kept muttering to himself, and finally he broke out into a loud crow of delight. We are certainly in luck! said he. We ought to have very little trouble now. Number one has had the misfortune to tread in the creosote. You can see the outline of the edge of his small foot here at the side of this evil-smelling mess. The carboy has been cracked, you see, and the stuff has leaked out. What then? I asked. Why, we have got him, that's all, said he. I know a dog that would follow that scent to the world's end if a pack can track a trailed herring across a shire. How far can a specially trained hound follow so pungent a smell as this? It sounds like a sum in the rule of three. The answer should give us the... But hello, here are the accredited representatives of the law. Heavy steps and the clamour of loud voices were audible from below and the hall door shut with a loud crash. Before they come, said Holmes, just put your hand here on this poor fellow's arm and here on his leg. What do you feel? The muscles are hard as a board, I answered. Quite so. They are in a state of extreme contraction, far exceeding the usual rigor mortis, coupled with this distortion of the face, this Hippocratic smile, or risers sardonicus, as the old writers call it. What conclusion would it suggest to your mind? Death from some powerful vegetable alkaloid, I answered. Some strychnine-like substance which would produce tetanus. That was the idea which occurred to me the instant I saw the drawn muscles of the face. On getting into the room, I at once looked for the means by which the poison had entered the system. As you saw, I discovered a thorn which had been driven or shot with no great force into the scalp. 
you observe that the part struck was that which would be turned towards the hole in the ceiling if the man were erect in his chair. Now examine the thorn. I took it up gingerly and held it in the light of the lantern. It was long, sharp, and black, with a glazed look near the point, as though some gummy substance had dried upon it. The blunt end had been trimmed and rounded off with a knife. "'Is that an English thorn?' he asked. "'No, it certainly is not. With all these data you should be able to draw some just inference. But here are the regulars. So the auxiliary forces may beat a retreat.' As he spoke, the steps which had been coming nearer sounded loudly on the passage and a very stout, portly man in a grey suit strode heavily into the room. He was red-faced, burly and plethoric, with a pair of very small, twinkling eyes which looked keenly out from between swollen and puffy pouches. He was closely followed by an inspector in uniform and by the still palpitating Thaddeus Sholto. "'Ears a business!' he cried in a muffled, husky voice. Here's a pretty business. But who are these? Why, the house seems to be as full as a rabbit warren. I think you must recollect me, Mr. Athelney Jones, said Holmes quietly. Why, of course I do, he wheezed. It's Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the theorist. Remember you. I'll never forget how you lectured us all on causes and interference and effects in the Bishopsgate jewel case. It's true you set us on the right track, but you'll own now that it was more by good luck than good guidance. It was a very simple piece of reasoning. Oh, come now, come. Never be ashamed to own up. But what is all this? Bad business, bad business. Stern facts here. No room for theories. How lucky that I happened to be out of Norwood over another case. I was at the station when the message arrived. What do you think the man died of? Oh, this is hardly the case for me to theorise over, said Holmes dryly. No, no. Still, we can't deny that you hit the nail on the head sometimes. Dear me. Door locked, I understand. Jewels worth half a million missing. How was the window? Fastened, but there are steps on the sill. Well, well, if it were fastened, the steps could have nothing to do with the matter. That's common sense. Man might have died in a fit, but then the jewels are missing. Ha! I have a theory. These flashes come upon me at times. Just step outside, Sergeant, and you, Mr. Sholto. Your friend can remain. What do you think of this, Holmes? Sholto was on his own confession with his brother last night. The brother died in a fit on which Sholto walked off with the treasure. How's that? On which the dead man very considerately got up and locked the door on the inside. Hum, there's a flaw there. Let us apply some common sense to the matter. This Thaddeus Sholto was with his brother. There was a quarrel. So much we know. The brother is dead, and the jewels are gone. So much we also know. No one saw the brother from the time Thaddeus left him. His bed had not been slept in. Thaddeus is evidently in a most disturbed state of mind. His appearance is, well, not attractive. You see that I am weaving my web round Thaddeus. 
the net begins to close upon him. "'You are not quite in possession of the facts yet,' said Holmes. "'This splinter of wood, which I have every reason to believe is poisoned, "'was in the man's scalp where you still see the mark. "'This card, inscribed as you see it, was on the table, "'and beside it lay this rather curious stone-headed instrument. "'How does all this fit into your theory?' "'Confirms it, in every respect,' said the fat detective pompously. House is full of Indian curiosities. Thaddeus brought this up, and if this splinter be poisonous, Thaddeus may as well have had made murderous use of it as any other man. The card is some hocus-pocus, a blind as like as not. The only question is, how did he depart? Ha <laughs> ha! Of course, here is a hole in the roof. With great activity, considering his bulk, he sprang up the steps and squeezed through into the garret, and immediately afterwards we heard his exulting voice proclaiming that he had found the trapdoor. He can find something, remarked Holmes, shrugging his shoulders. He has occasional glimmerings of reason. Il n'y a pas de sud, si commode, que ceux qui ont de l'esprit. You see said Athelney Jones, reappearing down the steps again. Facts are better than mere theories, after all. My view of the case is confirmed. There is a trapdoor communicating with the roof, and it is partly open. It was I who opened it. Oh, indeed, you did notice it, then. He seemed a little crestfallen at the discovery. Well, whoever noticed it, it shows how our gentleman got away. Inspector! Yes, sir, from the passage. Ask Mr. Sholto to step this way. Mr. Sholto, it is my duty to inform you that anything which you may say will be used against you. I arrest you in the Queen's name as being concerned in the death of your brother. There now! Didn't I tell you? cried the poor little man, throwing out his hands and looking from one to the other of us. Don't trouble yourself about it, Mr. Sholto, said Holmes. I think that I can engage to clear you of the charge. Don't promise too much, Mr. Theorist, don't promise too much, snapped the detective. You may find it a harder matter than you think. Not only will I clear him, Mr. Jones, but I will make you a free present of the name and description of one of the two people who were in this room last night. His name, I have every reason to believe, is Jonathan Small. He is a poorly educated man. Small, active, with his right leg off, and wearing a wooden stump which is worn away upon the inner side. His left boot has a coarse, square-toed sole with an iron band round the heel. He is a middle-aged man, much sunburned, and has been a convict. These few indications may be of some assistance to you, coupled with the fact that there is a good deal of skin missing from the palm of his hand. The other man... Ah! The other man? asked Athelney Jones in a sneering voice, but impressed nonetheless, as I could easily see, by the precision of the other's manner. Is a rather curious person, said Sherlock Holmes, turning upon his heel. I hope before very long to be able to introduce you to the pair of them. A word with you, Watson. He led me out to the head of the stair. This unexpected occurrence, said he, 
has caused us rather to lose sight of the original purpose of our journey. I have just been thinking so, I answered. It is not right that Miss Morstan should remain in this stricken house. No. You must escort her home. She lives with Mrs Cecil Forrester in Lower Camberwell, so it is not very far. I will wait for you here if you will drive out again, or perhaps you are too tired. By no means! I don't think I could rest until I know more of this fantastic business. I have seen something of the rough side of life, but I give you my word that this quick succession of strange surprises tonight has shaken my nerve completely. I should like, however, to see the matter through with you now that I have got so far. Your presence will be of great service to me, he answered. We shall work the case out independently and leave this fellow Jones to exult over any mare's nest which he may choose to construct. When you have dropped Miss Morstan, I wish you to go on to number three, Pinchin Lane, down near the water's edge at Lambeth. The third house on the right-hand side is a bird stuffer's. Sherman is the name. You will see a weasel holding a young rabbit in the window. Knock old Sherman up and tell him, with my compliments, that I want Toby at once. You will bring Toby back in the cab with you. A dog, I suppose? Yes. A queer mongrel with the most amazing power of scent. I would rather have Toby's help than that of the whole detective force in London. I shall bring him then, said I. It is one now. I ought to be back here before three if I can get a fresh horse. And I, said Holmes, shall see what I can learn from Mrs. Bernstone and from the Indian servant who, Mr. Thaddeus tells me, sleeps in the next garret. Then I shall study the great Jones's methods and listen to his not-too-delicate sarcasms. Wir sind gewöhnt, dass die Menschen verhöhnen, was sie nicht verstehen. Goethe is always pithy. Thanks for listening. Read more about this week's narrator in the show notes. You can send your thoughts to howeverimprobablepod at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at ImprobablePod and our website, HoweverImprobablePodcast.com, where you can find transcripts, the research behind the episode, and suggestions for further reading. However Improbable is created by Marissa Vicario and Sarah Kolb, with apologies to Arthur Conan Doyle. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, dear listeners, believe us to be very sincerely yours.